T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. It's Beamaz and Beamer. Now, Brian Mazarowski and Joe Beamer. News Radio 930 WBEN. Welcome, welcome into Beamaz and Beamer here on WBEN. Joe, is Joe, Jim, do you know, is Joe back here tomorrow? <laughs> that is the most noncommittal <laughs> nod I've ever gotten. Uh, he might be back here uh, tomorrow with me. Uh, but for now, stuck here with uh, just Brian here and Beamaz and Beamer. Uh, Joe will be here later on today filling in for Tom Bowerly once again. Uh, lots to get to in the news. We'll be joined later this hour by Dr. Amish Adalja from Johns Hopkins University, a favorite guest of mine. Uh, I think he's uh, one of the most level-headed guys you'll talk to during this whole COVID pandemic. Uh, he's here to answer some questions on uh, COVID. That, a lot of them that were brought up yesterday that I told a listener. I, I bet you you don't believe me when I uh, tell you these things. Brought up a study. I said, no, give me 24 hours. I'll, I'll read it and brush up on that. And I did. And so uh, Dr. Adaljan is going to be on to kind of take us through some of the questions that that uh, new article in The Lancet brings up. Um, uh, elsewhere in the news, we have – I've finally come to – and this is a topic that we've talked about, I think, a lot on uh, this show. A, a lot uh, just across the board here on WBEN and that is the unionization effort at Starbucks. And I think that, you know, through going through some of the comments that come through here on our text board, 8030930, um, just going through the story in general, uh, the unionization effort at a few Starbucks locations are probably more when all is said and done here in western New York. I, I think I've finally found my end result, uh, the, my end, you know, uh, uh, opinion on this whole thing, a- and that is, if you are, you know, really paying attention a lot to this, if you have a strong opinion about, uh, especially against the unionization effort from Starbucks employees, I think my opinion has turned to, why? Who? What do you care? <laughs> I, I think I've settled on that. What's the matter to you? You don't work there? I mean, for real, what, what difference is it going to make to you? If employees at a, a store want to unionize, which is their right, they want to organize, you're just a customer there, you're probably not even a customer there, what does it matter to you? Don't let them do it. 
whether that's good or bad, you know, I'll figure it out later. But I, I, I'm very surprised that that's, you know, that's a hot topic and that we, we have kind of parsed this down the way that we have. I know it's not typical for kind of that type of service job to have a union, but, you know, if you want to do it, more power to you, I guess. I just can't, I can't figure out the reason for the, you know, harsh opposition that I see sometimes. Like, oh, you got to be kidding me. You know, there's just people acting like these uh, employees at Starbucks are crazy for this effort. Which I, you know, you're not working their job. You're not, nothing's going to change in your view. If it ends up not working out for them in the long run, I, you know, that's their issue to deal with. I just don't see, if you have a strong opinion against it, I, I just can't see the reason for that. That's what I've uh, figured out today. If you missed our interviews on that, we talked to a couple of labor experts, uh, Peter DeJesus with the AFL-CIO, Art Wheaton, both of those in the podcast tab over at WBEN.com. So uh, we have that today. Uh, the, also, also in the news, this is, we have to go back now. We have to go back to San Francisco, where once again, the mayor, London Breed, spotted in violation of the city's strict indoor masking mandates. You might have uh, remembered this happened a while ago. She was, I believe, at a concert, spotted indoors without a mask on. Uh, made an excuse that she was just kind of living in the moment. And, you know, I, I think we replied here, hey, no, need to apologize. We all are too. <laughs> we understand. I, hopefully you can understand as well. Well, over the weekend, uh, there was a new video that has just now surfaced of Mayor Breed dancing without a mask on in a nightclub, now going viral apparently in violation of her city's mask mandate that requires covering one's face at all times unless actively eating or drinking while indoors. She has responded. She said, I was at my table drinking drinks, and I'm enjoying myself in a venue. I'm not violating a health order. I'm watching the uh, video right now. I don't see a drink in her hand or food in her mouth. Or a table or chair uh, nearby. But, you know, that was her statement. <laughs> um, so you have that there. Uh, no table, no drinks in the video. She continued, I was in a private area with my drinks, with the people I was with, enjoying myself. Yes, I was dancing. Yes, I was drinking and having fun. At the end of the day, I'm doing everything I can to follow the existing protocols. Uh, now, so it's the second time you've been caught on video dancing around in a club, no mask on. I think everyone's looking at this and saying, yeah, nobody is blaming you. The thing that we're blaming, and now she has said that the city's mask mandate, by the way, because I do think this is important, the city's mask mandate is not hers to uphold or take down. That it's the San Francisco Department of Public Health a group of unelected health officials that make the policies. So uh, I think that's her position right now is that I did not write the mask mandate. But where people are upset is, okay, this is the second time, right, that you're in there. 
you're dancing, you're without a mask, indoors, in violation of the policy. If you think the policy is stupid, just say it. I think that's where people get upset with this. Not that you're, you know, a hypocrite or something like that. Not that you're in violation. But that after the fact, when you get caught and when you're asked about it, you don't tell the truth. Which the truth would have been in that situation, yeah, I'm not putting a mask on. Well, I'm enjoying myself at a bar, drinking occasionally, listening to music. And I doubt anybody else is either. I think if she went out and said that, this would kind of blow over in time, right? It wouldn't be as big of a controversy. So London Breed in the news again. Just a little uh, piece of advice for you there. And then Chris Cuomo. Chris Cuomo. Uh, Indefinitely suspended. We have that. There is no new news. I was almost expecting word that Chris Cuomo would be fired by CNN today, which I I feel like some people are expecting. I don't know if I do, but that's the question being asked. Should Cuomo be fired from CNN after new information came out about the length that he went to to protect his brother's image, using his media sources to help the former New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo through his sexual harassment scandal, trying to dig up dirt on the people who were accusing Cuomo of not acting appropriately. And uh, I have a headline here. Chris Cuomo violated journalism norms to help his brother and should resign from CNN. He's suspended indefinitely right now. He talked about it yesterday while on his radio show apologizing. I, see, here is where I, uh, I think I might differ from a lot of listeners out there. I don't think Chris Cuomo should resign from CNN. I don't think he should be fired. I honestly, I don't even think he should have been suspended indefinitely. Because I don't look at Chris Cuomo as a news journalist. (laughs) He's not. Chris Cuomo is not Walter Cronkite. Neither is Anderson Cooper. Neither is Hannity, neither is Joy Reid, neither is Tucker Carlson, Maddow. Those people are not news anchors. They're entertainers. They host, I mean, basically the cable version of The View. I look at Whoopi Goldberg the same way I look at Sean Hannity. Right? Or, you know, any of these other people who are on these shows... They're all serving the same purpose. I I see these stories, and I'm not shocked by them. And I'm not upset. I think that's because of the expectations that I go in with. I didn't expect anything else. Of course he's going to help his brother. He's not running a news program. He's running an entertainment show. And it got me thinking about, you know, not everybody thinks this way, and I do kind of think that's a shame. If you're on cable and you're in the 30s, right, you get 30, 31, 32, you're any of those channels, and you're thinking you're watching the news the same way that your parents once did at 6.30 at night, you're not. You're not. It's entertainment show. It's the same way that my son watches Peppa Pig 
Maybe you might learn something, but at the end of the day, you're just being entertained. I, I think it brings up the question of where do you get your news? You know, where do you, you know, and I, I love to hear the people who said, well, you know, I go to a variety of sources. I'll watch Fox News, and then I'll also watch MSNBC or CNN. So, you know, I get all of the news. And when I hear that, all I say is, so you're even more messed up than everybody else. You're even more messed up because you're hearing the spin from everybody. I mean, these are designed for ratings. These are designed for entertainment. It's not the news as it once was. I mean, if you're looking at CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, and, and you know, I'm, I don't know if I'm financially literate enough to tell you about Fox Business or CNBC, but I would assume that there's an element. I've watched enough Jim Cramer to see how entertaining that show is to know that I can't be getting just the straight no BS anything on that show. But it does bring up the question of, you know, what do you view these programs as? Are you viewing them as news when you watch one of the cable uh, programs? And if not, where do you go for your news? You know, when people ask me that, you know, where do you go to for news? You know, you give the news in the morning. Where do you go to to make sure you're not getting the, you know, unbiased opinion? And to that reason, I say, well, listen, there is a reason that in the morning you'll hear us play uh, long Q&As from whether it's the county executive, whoever it might be, because that's where I go to for news. I, I want transcripts right, of what the people who are making the decision are actually saying. That's the news with no spin. I I want maybe some of these peer-reviewed studies and papers, taking a a billion of them. That's the news that I want. I want to read through long quotes and interviews verbatim. And that's how you have to get the news now. And it's kind of sad that it's come to that, that uh, people have lost trust in organizations. But I think if you're really searching for what is going on, if you're really searching for some unfiltered, unbiased news, that's, I think, what you have to do. And that gets to the second part of the problem. And it's not that these entertainment shows are masquerading as news. I mean, that's part one. But I think part two is people aren't actually looking for the news anymore. You know, you have news shows or, excuse me, entertainment shows masquerading as news because that's what people want. At some point uh, along the way here, and I don't know when that is, you know, I I would love to watch a newscast (laughs) <laughs> what would happen if you put on like a newscast from 1950 on the uh, TV right now? I, no one would sit through it. You'd be like bored out of your skull. And you'd say, well, this is this isn't news. This is uh, this is something else entirely. Now, like that's the news. It's like the old Norm Macdonald joke, right? You know, the news is now 24 hours. Back then, it used to be uh, 30 minutes. And it turns out they had it right. 
Like that's about as much as you need to know. But now that you have to add so much to fill the time you have on your network. And what people are looking for, I feel, is less the news. And I hear this all the time when we do interviews. You know, oh, you're not grilling them enough. You're not going after them. No, no, listen. You are the third party in the interview that you're listening to. It's also your job as a viewer or as a listener to kind of take that information and make what you will of it. It's not the person who is the quote-unquote news person's job to project your idea of what's being said onto that broadcast or on that interview. That's a very new school way of doing it. People more and more, I feel like, are searching out not news. You're searching out for stuff that looks like news but agrees with whatever it is you're thinking in your head. And then you'll continue to go down that path. You know, it's like we said about these studies yesterday. You can find a study that agrees with anything. It's up to you to kind of do the work to sort through it and find out where the truth lies. right? And this is something we'll bring up with Dr. Adalja in a matter of minutes here. But people like to say, what's the new thing? And something we were talking about yesterday, taking calls on. So vaccinated people can spread COVID just like any unvaccinated person can. Then you have another group that months ago were saying, well, vaccinated people basically can't spread COVID. Now it's, well, you're, you're basically you can't. Uh, you know, it's a very, very unlikely that you can't. Well, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. And it's very hard to kind of figure out where that is. But when you have one side of people saying this, the other side of people saying that, all you're doing is creating, boom, conflict in the middle. And the conflict sells. Right? There's a good guy and a bad guy on all these channels. There's a good guy and a bad guy in this. And that's not really how the world works. We know that. So, no, I'm not mad at Chris Cuomo. He did kind of what I expected him to do. He's an entertainer. It's not, he, he might tell you he's a journalist. He's not. He's an entertainer on TV. So is Anderson Cooper. So is Hannity, Carlson, Maddow, Reed, anyone that you watch on there. You're watching it for entertainment. It's comfort food, if you will. And he did exactly what I expected him to do in that. Yeah, he's using his power behind the scenes to help his brother. I mean, is it right? No, in the sense that you're interfering with an investigation that's going on. Uh, that you are, uh, you're basically acting as a political operative. But come on, tell me that you're not looking at any of these people on a channel in the 30s and saying that they're not acting like a political operative too. Are you really expecting to turn in, uh, tune in Chris Cuomo and hear the correct interpretation of what his brother Andrew Cuomo is doing? <laughs> a fair, honest, down the middle? I mean, if you are, I have an NFT to sell you for $6,000. Please, give me a call and stay on the line. But anyways, that's, I'm not mad at Chris Cuomo. It's basically what I would expect. Because I don't expect the news. He's not a news person. All right, well, when we come back, we are going to be joined by Dr. Amish Adalsha, Johns Hopkins University. And I want to ask him a little bit about this uh, study that was brought up by a caller yesterday. I went through it. Article in The Lancet that basically concludes, its conclusion was, it appears to be grossly negligent 
to ignore the vaccinated population as a possible and relevant source of transmission when deciding about public health control measures, which is how we're acting in uh, a lot of cases, not just in Erie County, but around the U.S. and around the world. Is that the way that we should be acting? We'll take a look at the study. We'll take a look at some of the uh, data that it uses and the argument that it has at the end. Is it time to change our approach? What will call us, uh, cause us, excuse me, to change our approach? More with that, Dr. Adalja coming up. BMAS and Beamer on WBEN. It's BMAS and Beamer, News Radio 930 WBEN. Happy holidays, right, Jim? Thanks for the uh, lead-in music. BMS and Beamer here on WBEN. Just myself here with you today. Uh, talking a little bit about the COVID uh, picture and some of the major questions that kind of stick with us. And one of the my favorite people I like to bring on here on the show is Dr. Amish Adalja, senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, specializing in infectious disease. He joins us on the line now. Dr. Adalja, thanks so much for being with us once again. Thanks for having me. Uh, we uh, maybe we'll uh, get into the new variant. Uh, this probably is one of the first interviews you've done this week. That's not going to be focused solely on Omicron. Omicron. I'm going to pronounce it right one of these days. But I do want to get to something that a lot of callers were bringing up on our show yesterday, and uh, I did a little digging it into. And it's this new article was posted in The Lancet, and it's about basically the efficacy of vaccines in stopping the spread of the virus, which we are still, you know, kind of in our response here. What you look at here in our county, there's a a mask mandate in place unless you're a fully vaccinated venue, then you can, you know, do whatever without the mask, no problem. But we're still acting, you know, as if vaccines are the end-all be-all for stopping the spread. That Lancet article concludes that it appears to be grossly negligent to ignore the vaccinated population as a possible and relevant source of transmission when deciding about public health control measures. And that study points to another one from the European Journal of Epidemiology that points out in October of this year of the top five counties across the U.S., that have the highest percentage of population fully vaccinated. Uh, The CDC identifies four of them as high transmission counties that would kind of signal that even if you are well vaccinated, the virus can still spread amongst you. Uh, Where do we go with this information? Because I feel like people look at it as if it's black and white, either you're spreading the virus all the time or you're totally unable to do so. But the answer is always somewhere in between. So I think it's important to say a, a, a few things first. So the, the vaccines are the key tool to controlling the pandemic. But remember, controlling the pandemic is not about eradicating or eliminating transmission or the virus. That's not possible. It's about preventing serious illness, hospitalization, and death. And the vaccines, while they do not block every infection, while they are not bug zappers or magic force fields, do slow spread. You are much less likely to be infected if you are vaccinated than if you are not, and you are going to be less contagious to others if you are vaccinated because you will be contagious for a shorter period of time and you're less likely to get it to begin with. 
So in general, there is still more transmission among unvaccinated to unvaccinated than there is vaccinated to unvaccinated or vaccinated to vaccinated. That's definitely the case. And some of this has changed only because the virus has changed. So the efficacy that we saw of the vaccine against blocking transmission when it came to the original variant or when it came the original version or when it came to the alpha variant, that sort of dropped off with Delta because it's much more contagious. So the ability to block transmission fell with with the vaccines and it fell as people were out from their second dose of vaccine as some of the antibodies, which the antibody levels had fallen. And that's why we're seeing more more breakthroughs amongst vaccinated people and more transmission among vaccinated people. But it is it is the case, though, that vaccines do slow transmission. And I think that's what's missed, that they that is it is the best way to prevent yourself from being a vector from COVID-19. But it's not going to be ironclad. And I think you have to realize with a virus like this and as people get back to their normal activities, there are going to be breakthroughs and there may be spread from vaccinated individuals. But the problem we have right now is certain hospitals are getting full, specifically in rural areas where there are low vaccination rates. So to me, transmission has always been secondary to severe disease, and that's where the vaccines are the key, the, the, the key um, component to our response. On that hospitalization rate, you know, that's the big concern over here. We're being told that, you know, hospitals are, are nearing capacity in our county and surrounding counties. And I wouldn't consider this to be a low vaccination rate area. I think it's uh, around 70 percent of everybody, 80 percent of all adults have at least one dose. And it's somewhere just under that, but above 60 percent of people are fully vaccinated. Yet we're seeing hospital numbers that are basically the same as what we saw last year. How is that explained if, you know, these vaccines are working well as they were explained to us many months ago. Just go in the hospital and go ask those patients, are they vaccinated, the ones that are there? And over 80%, I would say, are not going to be vaccinated. Uh, this is because even with a vaccination rate that's relatively higher, what you think might be high, it's not high enough because what you have are maybe 20% of the population not fully vaccinated, and you have hospital capacity, which is basically fixed. So even if 20%, even if you've got 80% vaccinated, that 20% still is a significant number for hospitals, maybe not for a major academic teaching center that has 800 beds, but for a community hospital that has 100 beds or 100 and, or 200 beds and, and six ICU beds, it is too much. And, and that's what's happened. COVID is not a systemic problem in the U.S. anymore. It's more of a regional hospital problem. And it's really hitting rural hospitals that have low capacity hard because that tends to also overlap where low vaccination rates may be you might have been able to get away with this with other variants like the alpha variant. We saw cases and hospitalizations drop precipitously when we hit around 40% full vaccination. But Delta is a much more contagious variant and that requires a higher level of immunity to keep to keep people out of the hospital. New York City, for example, on the other side of your state, they have that high level of vaccination where they're not seeing hospitals getting in getting in trouble. They they have cases in the hospitals, but it's it's much more it's, it's actually remarkable how low it is compared to you know, some small town in the middle of Pennsylvania where I'm from. I ask you this question every single time, and we still have never really answered it, though. Um, what is the vaccine supposed to do? Our um, response as a country, as a region, you look at the leaders who are making these decisions on mask mandates or vaccination mandates. 
I, it seems to be muddled where we're not yet answering the question, are we looking for a vaccine to help you individually prevent a serious outcome from COVID, or are we looking for something that means you might never get COVID or certainly never spread it, which apparently it would seem now would mean, what, a booster every two or three months? Yes, I think that the country has not been clear on its goals. I've always been clear on the goal, uh, that the goal is to remove the ability of this virus to crush hospitals, and that is by giving people vaccines that protect them against serious disease, hospitalization, and death. The virus cannot be eradicated. It cannot be eliminated. Uh, it has an animal host. It spreads efficiently. Uh, we may, and, and especially with these first-generation vaccines, you're going to see breakthrough infections. Uh, that's, that's a fact of life. And that doesn't mean the vaccines aren't working because the vaccines are designed to prevent serious illness. That's what, a, that's what flattening the curve was all about. And I think we have to continue to remind our policymakers that that should be the overarching goal. But I think people have somehow let this idea of COVID zero creep into their thinking, and that sometimes influences the policy, and, and it's wrong because it's not achievable, and, it's, and it ends up leading to public health measures that are not really justifiable for a virus like this and not sustainable uh, as well. So I, I do think that the country has not articulated goals appropriately. They did early on, and now they've kind of washed away, as you see with the way that people have handled you know, Omicron or anything else. And uh, in, in even the whole the whole booster discussion again is about I think is is muddled because the people that really need the boosters are those above the age of sixty five and those at high risk for severe COVID because that's what we're trying to prevent severe illness but that sort of has become uh, forgotten and now it's become universalized where I think that the value is very marginal and and I think you have to remember if the goal is to pr- protect hospitals and to remove the morbidity and mortality the people dying from COVID. It's first and second doses that do that, not uh, uh, not third doses. Uh, you know, to this point, a lot of people, when they say they're arguing over COVID, we're not really arguing over COVID, are we? Uh, we're arguing over the response and, you know, different types of mandates. I'll go back to that uh, paper uh, in the European Journal of Epidemiology. Their argument in the end was that efforts should be made to encourage people to get vaccinated but it should be done so with humility and respect. They say stigmatizing populations can do more harm than good. And, you know, that's where I'm I'm getting to right now, where I think that the message is tearing us apart, where we're continuing to revolve this messaging. We see it here in Erie County around the idea and our policies, too, that vaccinated people can't spread the virus. But we know that's not entirely true. Uh, we spelled that out before. You, you're less likely, but the messaging continues to be, like around the holidays, well, if it's fully vaccinated, if it's a bar, if it's your house, you can feel totally safe. And I feel like that message is tearing us apart. There was a poll that was out the other day. It showed a majority of Canadians are unwilling to let unvaccinated friends or family members into their home. Like, that's not good for us as a society because we're still thinking of vaccines is force fields and we're being encouraged to and pointing the finger well if you're unvaccinated you're you're a scourge on society you're contributing to this uh, horrible spread of the disease instead of the idea of get vaccinated just to protect yourself well it is true that the unvaccinated people are burdening society because that's what's crushing community hospitals it's those unvaccinated individuals who live in a rural area who then choose not to get vaccinated, but then choose to come take advantage of all the medical care and all the science 
that's available at the, at the hospital or choose to get monoclonal antibodies, which are the products of the same science that develop these vaccines. So in that sense, I do think it's okay to stigmatize them because they are burdening our hospitals. Because if you live in a hospital where there are no ICU beds and you get in a car accident and you need a, a trauma ICU bed or you have a heart attack or you have a stroke and you have to wait in the waiting room because it is full of unvaccinated COVID patients, I do think that, that unvaccinated people should be called out based on that. I think the vaccines do protect you from severe disease individually and it protects your hospital to be i would rather live in a place where it's all vaccinated because i know my hospitals are not going to get crushed with covid19 that's what the issue is it's not necessarily to me about spreading it because i think if you're fully vaccinated yes you are you can feel safe because you are protected against what matters serious illness hospitalization and death and you're not going to be the one taking an icu bed away from a stroke patient when do we start to turn it around and, you know, point the, uh, the finger at whether it's a governmental problem or our healthcare system where, you know, we need the hospital number to go down ideally, but every, it seems like every November we're probably going to be dealing with a wave of COVID cases, at least in our area, the Northeast, that lasts until maybe February we're actually decreasing hospital capacity because of staffing and other issues, yet the finger gets pointed at us instead of, you know, focusing on how can we increase hospital capacity? I mean, should that be what we're talking about? Yes, I do think that hospital capacity is something that has trended down over the years, and pandemic preparedness in hospitals isn't something that's prioritized. But think about how hard it is to build a hospital. Imagine if you wanted to even add a wing onto a hospital. How many zoning boards, how many environmental impact statements, how many township supervisors and county commissioners and zoning board members would you have to bribe to have that happen? It would be years and years before that actually happened. In China, they can build a hospital in a week. We can't do that. And in many states, if your competitor hospital says, well, no, you don't need those beds, they can actually say they can actually be declined in, in states that have certificate of need laws where you have to prove that you need those beds. So, so I do think that this is a longer-term problem that needs a solution, that hospital capacity shouldn't be fixed. It should be able to flex up. Just the way Internet companies like Zoom increased their capacity during the pandemic, hospitals should have been able to do that, but they've not been able to. You can't even if – you if you're licensed in Pennsylvania and you want to work in New York, you can't do that very easily. We, we have a lot of problems with the way our healthcare system is structured, and it really came – came to the fore during this pandemic. It exposed what many of us have been talking about for a long time, how vulnerable we would be to a pandemic because our hospital capacity was it was de facto fixed because of bureaucracy and regulation. And I think that's something that needs to be dealt with in the longer term, but it's not going to be fixed overnight. And I don't, I don't think that you're going to see certificate of need laws peeled away from all of these states so that hospitals could expand. So, so I do think that Overall, yes, I think our, our healthcare system made us much more vulnerable to COVID-19, and it drove a lot of the policy early on. And it has to be fixed for the next the next pandemic because we will see something else that impinges on hospital capacity, and and they're just not able to do it. It, it happened over and over again. It happened in the spring. It happened in the summer. It happened in the winter, and it's happening again now in smaller hospitals. Uh, just want to, you know, kind of add to something you've been saying to give a picture of here. This is across New York State. It's not necessarily in our Buffalo region, but across New York State, the data we have uh, as of the beginning of November, I think that's the latest we have there. Maybe it's the end of no mid-November. Uh, fully vaccinated hospitalization rate per 100,000 people who are in the hospital with COVID is 0. 0.7. 
unvaccinated daily rate per 100,000 people is about six and a half per 100,000 in the hospital with COVID. So that's the difference. 0.7 vaccinated, six and a half uh, per 100,000. This is unvaccinated. Just we're getting a lot of uh, comments on there uh, <laughs> looking for what the numbers are. And, uh, you know, those are the numbers that kind of back up your point. Uh, want to switch now to the variant, if we could. I I feel like it's, it, we see this a lot, depending on where you're looking. We hear so much scary stuff, Omicron. I, do we want this to be a, you know, variant that can spread a lot and only causes mild illness? It seems like that's what we would want, right? It, it might speed up the end of the pandemic if, all we're talking about is a, a headache and sniffles, and it spreads like wildfire. That's probably where this is going inevitably, whether we like it or we don't like it. That's what viruses, like respiratory viruses that spread efficiently, that's what they do. And there's even evidence that, that a pandemic that happened in the late 19th century uh, was probably a coronavirus uh, that now we deal with every day and causes some of our common colds. So, yes, I think in general you're going to see that there's a trend for viruses like COVID-19 that spread that way to mutate, to get around some of our immunity and, and transition to a, a lower virulence organism just so that it can spread efficiently and establish itself in the human population. And that's what, that may be what's happening with Omicron. It's too early to know that definitively, but there are some suggestions that that may be happening. And, and I think, again, it's all about severe disease. If Omicron is causing mild disease in fully vaccinated people, I think that we're okay. I think if it's the unvaccinated that are getting hospitalized, that, that makes sense. And that tells us that our vaccines, even if breakthrough infections become more common with Omicron, are going to hold up against what matters, serious disease, hospitalization, and death. And at least that part of the data seems to be pretty robust from South Africa, that those getting hospitalized tend to be the, those that are not vaccinated. And I think that underscores the importance of the vaccine. And I think it allows us to breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief that Omicron is not going to necessarily be cataclysmic, although we still have to do a lot more research to understand what it actually means. But I'm, I'm getting more and more reassured uh, based on what I've seen on a day-to-day basis. But I think we'll know more probably at the end of that, that two-week period when they can finish all of the experiments. Do we have any sort of good estimate on you know nationwide the percentage of the population that's protected either from vaccination plus a prior COVID infection? It, it probably, if you add those two together, you're probably around the 70 to 80 percent um, mark. I think there's 60 percent of the U.S. population is fully vaccinated around that. And then I think there's going to be overlap between people who are fully vaccinated and who had prior infection. So I would say I'd put it probably in the 70 to, 70 to 80 percent range. I don't think we have a good estimate uh, of that overall, um, but it's probably around there. And that, But the thing is, it's not just the overall population, because that's the, that's the whole nation. That's all 50 states. There are pockets, counties, towns, where it may be that the whole population is very has low, low vaccination. So, for example, in West Virginia, the full vaccination rate is 41 percent. That's not a good that's not a that's not a good sign, because if there's 41 percent, maybe 20 percent, say, have have a prior immunity. So maybe it's 60 percent total protection that you have there. That's still not enough if you have a, a small hospital that has a six bed ICU and your whole town gets in, in your town gets a surge of cases. Before we let you go, uh, we're expecting to hear from the president later on a little bit about uh, expanding rapid testing, at-home testing, and the availability of that. seems like uh, we've only been asking for it for the last year and a half. 
and now it's finally coming. But I have to say, I mean, this is going to be something reimbursed through insurance. I I don't know your feeling on this, but I'm still kind of expecting that, okay, if you're home with the sniffles or, or something, you're feeling mildly ill, I'm not about to go out and spend, even if it's just $20, with just $20, $20 is a lot of money. Spend $20 to buy an at-home test and then fill out the paperwork and hope for my insurance reimbursement a month from now. I still think that's a little time and cost prohibitive. I do think it's it's not going to necessarily move the needle too much on this. And we want these tests to be cheap and ubiquitous and easy the way they are in Europe. And the thing is, in the United States, we've regulated them in such a way that, that the price gets, that, that cost of development, the cost of regulatory compliance gets passed on to the customers because we, we regulate them as if they're the same as a medical diagnostic test in a hospital when they really should be thought of as public health tests and regulated to a much stringent degree so that the price can come down significantly. They should really be thought of as public health tests because what they are really asking or answering is, are you dangerous to others? And that's really a public health function. And I think that they could be a lot cheaper um, if we if they didn't have to go through all of those regulatory loopholes to, to do so. And I think that we, we had a, these are things that we were clamoring for early on in the Trump administration when they were available. And they had there was just such difficulty selling people on this idea uh, that they would be useful. I'm glad that we have them, but they really have not fulfilled their promise because they've been so prohibitive in terms of cost and their scarcity, where you have to drive all around town trying to find them. And, if we are going to be using them much more strategically, uh, they have to be ubiquitous and they have to be easy for people to use. And I think paperwork and bureaucracy is not going to be conducive to it. Yeah, it is kind of crazy. You can get the weed test at the dollar store, but the COVID test, we're still you know, jumping through all these hoops. Dr. Adalja, thanks so much once again. Always enjoy having you on. Dr. Amish Adalja is with Johns Hopkins University, uh, specialist in infectious disease at their Center for Health Security. Joe will be back tomorrow. I got confirmation from Joe. And Jimmy's still looking at me. He's giving me the look. Uh, but excited to have him back tomorrow. Beam as and Beamer on WBEN. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.